Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The murder was on the Monday. By the Wednesday, I think they were starting to wonder if it wasn't uh, Robin, maybe even earlier. I think David was always the suspect. Welcome back to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. In this podcast, we look at New Zealand's most infamous crimes. And this week's case probably tops that list. David Bain spent 13 years in prison after being found guilty of killing his parents and three of his siblings in 1994. However, he always maintained his innocence and he was acquitted in a retrial in 2009. We're joined by senior stuff reporter Martin Van Bainen, who covered the original trial and made the hugely popular podcast Black Hands. Well, I was uh, just like any other New Zealander at the time of the actual murders and just watched it from afar. Um, I think we did send a, a reporter down to cover it. I was then working for the for the press. And um, it wasn't until about 97 that I started to get involved, mainly by reviewing some of the books that came out at the time. And one was by James McNeish and the other one was by Joe Karam. So I got to know some of the arguments and some of the personalities involved. And that was really my, my introduction to it. And then... Um, I sort of kept kept tabs on it. In two thousand and nine, I was the uh, main reporter for the for the press and stuff on the on the Bain trial, and um, I covered every day of the of the fifty eight day trial. And then uh, a couple of years later, I I started writing a book about it. And the book, I understand, is currently sort of what on hold. Well, no, I the, the book is being picked up by Penguin, Great. and um, so that will be a that will be published at a at a date as yet to be um, fixed, mainly because um, yeah, there are still some 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 issues that to go through, but um, no, I'm happy to report that the book will finally be published, and uh, that was the basis of the podcast, and also the basis of the. Of the drama series. Where shall we begin? Should we go back to 1994 and exactly what we know happened and what we don't know? Okay, well, uh, I'd have to bring you back to a sort of fairly bleak, dark, cold morning on June the 20th, 1994. And the first the world knew about it was a phone call that David made to uh, 111, and uh, he reported that his family was dead. This was about uh, 7.09 in the morning. He had come back from his uh, paper run and found his family uh, dead, shot. We actually do have the audio from that uh, 111 call, so maybe now is a good time to play it. Um, This is from RNZ Insight. This is the 111 call that David Bain made on that morning. Oh, 
65 every street. They're all dead. Who's all dead? My, my family, they're all dead. Hurry up. It's okay, every street. What number are you calling from? Four, four, five, four. Two five two seven. Two five two seven. And your last name? Bain. Bain. That's quite incredible to listen to that, it isn't is. it? I'm sure you I'm sure you've heard of it heard it plenty of times. Um any anything strike you about that call? Well, there are so many little stories attached to that call. Um obviously the first thing that strikes you is the sort of the sceptical attitude of the of the call taker. And that was a guy called Tom Dempsey, who was a Saint John ambulance um employee and he was in the in the call center taking calls and afterwards he remarked that he he never met anybody never experienced anybody who was able to give the details uh, um so so accurately and uh and concisely without sort of going into you know being affected by all the trauma so yeah some people would say that that's a very distressed david and other people would say that is david uh, acting and of course, we the police before the trial in 2009, they they were going through the the call and they found one of the police, one of the detectives thought he heard David say something during the during the call or under his breath, and that became a massive um, issue. Went right to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, "Well, no, you can't. We can't use that evidence. The police can't use that evidence." And essentially, the police were saying that David sort of uttered under his breath the words, I shot the prick or something like that. In that Another, call we just heard then? Yeah. Mm. Have you listened to it carefully and to see if you can I've listened to it with... very carefully. And I, I sort of agree with the Supreme Court. I think if you know, if you're told what he's supposed to have said, you can probably hear it. Mm. Uh, but I just think it's, it's, too, it's too sketchy. What part of the call does it come in, by the way? Uh, I can't remember. I think it's where he's asked about his his phone number or his address, something like that. Mm. I suppose we'd better talk about um, who was in his family as well, the context and, and who he's talking about there. So can you tell us about the Bain family? All right. Yes. Well, there were, uh, there were five bodies found in the house. And if we just could talk about the parents first. So uh, David's father was... Um, Robin, and he was 58, and he was a, a, a gifted teacher, um, ahead of his time in some respects, because he was, he was very good with computers, um, he was um, good with te reo and Maori cultural performances, and he was loved by his community. He was a, a real asset to the Tyree Beach um, community, and the parents really valued the fact that they had this gifted teacher uh, in their community. Unfortunately, Robin was a bit of a shambles otherwise. He hated paperwork and his office was a mess. Um, he lived in a caravan at home. He wasn't. He wouldn't sleep in the house. And also at school, he, he sort of lived out of his old van. So, yeah, interesting interesting character, uh, gentle. Always People say that he was very gentle and serious, but also with a, a wicked sense of humour. And then we have Margaret. Now, Margaret was a big personality. She was a devoted mother. But in some ways, she was a very angry, sort of resentful woman. She felt that that um, family deserved better and her spiritual life was, was, was slightly bizarre. She thought she had a 
direct line with God and that you know, and saw this devil everywhere. Very devoted to the family, but she still spent a lot of time in bed watching videos. Not a particularly functional marriage then at that point. No, the marriage the marriage was was a, had been in trouble for a long time. Margaret wanted Robin gone. She wanted him out of the family. Robin uh, hung in there. It was a bit of a spiritual war between them two. I mean, Margaret wanted Robin to to buy into her beliefs, whereas Robin was really a traditional Presbyterian and, and bore the 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 tensions at home stoically, but but he didn't he didn't succumb. He was he was a sort of a, a trench fighter. He he just sort of kept his head down, but he um, he stuck to his guns. Um, so the oldest was David. He was twenty two at the time of the murders, and he was a interesting character. He he was quite talented. He was a talented singer. Um, he was a good runner. Uh, he was a good dancer, and he had lots going for him. Except many people saw him as a sort of a geeky, nerdy guy, big, tall guy with big ears. He had no real friends, and he had a, 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 a funny manner, apparently. Um, according to some people, they thought he was a bit over the top, a bit needy, and um, a bit over friendly. So that was David. No one, very few people thought he was capable of doing anything like um, the things that he was accused of later. And then Ara was was nineteen. She was really the star of the family. She was um, sort of had strong moral principles. Was a good Christian girl, and a very talented teacher, incredibly hard worker. And I really have not heard anybody talk about her in anything other than very, very glowing terms. Again, you know, talented girl, uh, musically, and uh, just just a really nice person, personality, very highly regarded by everyone. Then we have Lani, and she was 18. Well, she was another interesting character. She struggled at school. She struggled academically and sort of craved attention and affection. Very much like her mother in some ways, uh, people people say. She clashed with Margaret and there were uh, issues with smoking and drugs and drinking and that sort of thing. And she rebelled, left school and found herself on the outside and living in the community with no real income. And she became a prostitute, uh, still maintaining some contact with the family, it should be said. She she wasn't she wasn't um, sort of banished altogether and Robin would pay some of her bills and it was, I think the family helped her with her rent and things like that. So there was still quite a lot of contact between them. David and Aral would go and see her and that sort of thing. So she wasn't totally estranged. So, so sorry, just to clarify, was she living in the house at, at that time or did she just happen to be there on that night? She just happened to be there that night, GC. She had actually left home about a year before and she was... Um, she had two residences. One was with her father out at the school. And I, it gets complicated, but a couple of months before the murders, Robin uh, Robin was off at the schoolhouse, which had previously been occupied. So all of a sudden he had a, had a new home out by the school. And Lani went to live with him, but she also retained her... She had a room in a boarding house in, uh, in Russell Street, which wasn't far from Central. Dunedin. But on the night uh, of the murders, she was home, partly, I think, because she had a, she was starting a new job the next day and um, she needed to get up early and I think 
this was, um, you know, probably a little more convenient for her. Okay, and and then and then one more for you to introduce us to. Yes, yeah, Stephen. Well, Stephen was fourteen, and he was a he was a wiry, gutsy kid. Um, played the trumpet at school. Uh, he had a lot of friends. He was a real live wire, and a bit of a scrapper. Unlike David, he he wouldn't take any uh, crap from anyone, and so he was a bit of a handful, I think. But a good kid, good hearted, and 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 popular at school. So. Um, that's the family. So uh, we heard the 111 call. Uh, we know that the well, – what did the police find when they got there? Well, they found uh, the five members of the family uh, dead. There was no sign of any life at all. Stephen and Arawa were out of bed and lying on the floor uh, with their – you know, having died from their injuries. Margaret and Alania were in bed – had been shot in bed and remained in bed. And Robin was in the front room with the rifle beside him and uh, lying on his side with one bullet wound in his in his head, making police think immediately this was a murder-suicide, so that Robin shot the family and then himself while David was out on his paper run. Mm. There was a computer message as well, which is probably worth mentioning. Yes, so... This message was on the computer. It said, uh, sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. So this was supposedly Robin telling David, "Um, look, I'm sorry, but you are the one who deserved to stay. Uh, So, yeah, a strange thing to do. A man deciding to take his own life and deciding to uh, write a last message. So he goes to the computer and writes, what is a fairly cryptic message, uh, apparently to David? But um, the, the police would later would later say that that was David just trying to make it look as though Robin was the was the killer. Yeah. When did they start thinking along those lines? When did they get the sense that it might not be so straightforward? It's a bit hard to say, but at least by I think the second or third day of the inquiry. So this was the the, the murder was on the Monday. By the Wednesday, I think they were starting to wonder if it wasn't uh, Robin, maybe even earlier. I think David was always the suspect. And so these things started to, yes, didn't um, add up. And David's initial problem was that he couldn't explain why he had taken so long to ring the police. When he, he got home about 6.40, 6.45, he didn't ring the police until 7.09. So that's 25 minutes. Now, what did he do during those 25 minutes? And that was what he... He could fill in a few, a little bit of that time, but he couldn't fill in the whole time. In fact, most of it. So that made the police wonder, well, what did you do during those um, 25 minutes? Yeah, that sort of raised suspicions. And then on the Thursday night, the police found a lens in Stephen's room. Now, the lens was from uh, some spectacles, the frame of which was found in David's room. So the frame was found on a chair in David's room, and beside the frame was the other lens. So the question was, well, how did the lens get into Stephen's room where there was the fight? And that's really the key to the whole case. The key to the case is the fight with Stephen. The killer had to have had some uh, signs of being in that fight. And it was a brutal fight, you know, sort of swirled around the room. Uh, Stephen had horrendous um, amount of injuries and cuts and abrasions and that sort of thing. So the killer 
would have sustained some damage. And um, one thing that fits into that is the lens because the, the spectacle's frame was damaged and so it looked as though it may have been in a fight. But, you know, that was so that was one, one strand of the circumstantial evidence against David. Probably not enough to, to um, even charge him, but, but very interesting nonetheless. What did police think David's motive would be? Or, or I mean, we, we might as well hop into that first uh, trial of David and, and, you know, what was the motive as stated by police there? Because, mo- because the police don't have to prove motive, uh, it wasn't a big part of the trial. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it helps. It helps to convince the jury that that person is guilty yeah. if you can show, if you can show that give the jury a good reason why, why the accused um, has committed the crime. But it's not part. Of, it's not one of the elements that the crown have to prove. So it doesn't become. It doesn't necessarily become a big part of the part of the case. But this is one of the, the fascinating things about the Bain case is that, that David supporters have always said, look, this is a uh, a young man who had absolutely no motive to to kill his family. In fact, his whole life was ahead of him. He was a talented guy. He was starting a relationship, and uh, things were starting to look up for him. Uh, so that was the the the, the defence view that David had absolutely no motive. A lovely guy, humorous, kind, and would never have killed his family. Uh, the police they didn't put a put forward any real. Uh, you know, a really strong motive. I think they they alluded to the fact that David hated his father and was very, very close to his mother. And it sort of went from there. I can think of a hundred different motives for David, you know, putting on my hat as an amateur psychologist. But at the end of the day, uh, we don't know. We don't know. If David was the killer, we don't know why why he did it. And we never really do, do we? We don't, like, generally speaking, um, mass killers don't tell us exactly why they do it. I can only, I, well, I'm thinking of, you know, I think I'm thinking of these mass killers who then com- who commit suicide before they, uh, uh, you know, after they've done their terrible deed. So motive is always going to be difficult. Uh, I think if we, if we look at David, you'd have to look at his very close relationship to his mother. You know, this was a, this was a woman who was seeing the devil everywhere and had this idea that they would, that they would set up this refuge sort of retreat so you, you, you combine a couple of those things and you start to think, uh, yes, David was, you know, was looking at, perhaps he was looking at more failure in the future. It's hard to know. As for Robin, the defence um, argument there was that Robin was sort of at his wit's end. His, his career was on the rocks. He, he was depressed, distressed about, you know, being pushed out of the family. And, of course, the, the clincher was... This, this evidence that Lani was telling everybody that he had uh, molested her or hadn't had a sort of incest with her, and that was going to come out. And, uh, and Robin knew that, and uh, and he snapped and, and took and took the family with him. So um, yeah, those are the two opposing uh, theories on the motive. And on what evidence was David Bain convicted? Well, the main points that he had to answer, and and again, um, I don't know why the two juries came to different verdicts. But the main hard evidence against David, um, according to the Crown, was, was based around about five or six different things. One was the, the, the fact that he had um, Stephen's blood on his clothes, and both on his, on his T-shirt, on his shorts and on his socks. And then he had injuries, which suggested he might have been in a fight. He had 
three or four bruises on his head and he had uh, scratch marks on his chest that looked as though someone might have scraped scraped his chest. His uh, fingerprints were found on the rifle, the murder weapon, and the fingerprints had been had been placed on there by the blood going on the fingers first and then it was placed on the rifle. And that was suspicious because the rifle was smeared in blood, but the spaces between David's fingerprints were clear, clear of any smearing. Then we have the lens, which I've already mentioned, and we have the the delay again in calling the police. Uh, and David also said that he heard Laniette gurgling. Now, the argument there is that if Laniette was gurgling, she still had to be alive. So the person who heard her gurgling uh, had to be the person who delivered the final shots that killed her. And then the sort of the second arm of the Crown case was that th there was very little evidence uh, against Robin. Like there were no, his, his, his fingerprints weren't on the rifle uh, and he had no none of the children's or his wife's blood on his clothes when he was found dead. So it gave them a terrible problem. They had to they had to explain why Robin would shoot the family, change his clothes, and they weren't you know he didn't change into his best suit. He changed into some raggedy old clothes, and then shot himself after having put the bloody clothes from the murders in the washing and the laundry. So that was always going to be a, a bit of a stumbling block for the for the defence. Uh, well, I better cover the defence case um, because. They said Robin did did have signs of being involved in the murders. He had some small injuries on his hands, which suggested he may have been in a fight. And they had an expert witness who said there were some bruises on his fingers, which may have been caused by a punch. But on the other hand, they could have been caused by lots of other things as well. And then they, then the defence said all of the evidence that the Crown was alleging against David was had explanations. They could explain it. There was there were other possibilities. So they tried to undermine every single element that I've talked about. And to a certain extent, they must have succeeded because the jury in the second trial acquitted David. One of the important defence uh, points was that the sock prints that were found in the house, and they said that, that uh, the, the sock prints were too small for David. They were made by bloodied socks. So they, the defence said, well, Robin, uh, David couldn't have made them because he, his feet are too big, and, and the, but they were exactly right for Robin. So uh, that put Robin uh, in Margaret's bedroom and in the hallway and where he could never have been if he, if he was innocent. So they, the sock prints became a huge issue, both for Justice Binney uh, when he did his compensation review uh, and, and, of course, in the trial. Uh, we should stress too that David Bain has always maintained his innocence and was in fact acquitted and uh, received compensation. See, can I just stop you there? Yeah. Can I just stop you there? It wasn't, it wasn't compensation. So the Crown said, we're not giving you compensation, but let's just put this to bed. We'll give you $925,000, I think it was, and, uh, and and you won't take it any further. And that was sort of, that was a, that was a sort of a deal a fairly uh, pragmatic deal done. So David well, did get some money and the Crown uh, could wash its hands of the whole thing. 
You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan, and you can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ Podcasts page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. And if you're looking for something else to listen to, RNZ has a great selection of podcasts, from quirky science shows like Sci-Fi, Sci-Fact, to Māori language podcasts like Whakamāori, 